Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Because we don't. It's because the people who work with us know that we care about them. We care about their life. We have stated core values as a team that we created together that we post on the wall and try and live by. And I think that, you know, people think of, you know, I think there's old school managers who think of this sort of woo-woo, new age, fluffy stuff as being superfluous. And I think just the opposite. I think you get the best out of people when they feel connected and they understand the why and they want to do it because Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Michael Solomon, author, business owner, I'm sure a bunch of other uh, adjectives as well. Michael, thanks for coming to the show. I don't know that we can say those adjectives over the public airwaves. <laughs> well, listen, I have had the pleasure of interviewing your your co-author already, but uh, for anybody who missed that episode, can you tell people about Game Changer? Oh, I'd love to. Depending on how many hours you have, I can just talk endlessly. I jest. So our background is managing talent across many different fields. So over the course of the last 25 years, we started out managing musical talent. And uh, over time, we expanded into directorial talent, entrepreneurial talent, and then eventually tech talent, which is where we're spending most of our time these days. And the book is really a distillation of understanding what top performers, what we refer to as 10Xers. These are people who are just the, the rock stars of the rock world or the rock stars of the tech world. These are people who outperform their peers by a factor of 10X or provi provide that, that equivalent additional value. And there's some things that really are through lines um, across the fields that I think became very interesting. And we framed it around what does corporate America need to know about hiring and retaining top talent at this point and managing top talent. And and that's sort of the, the nature of the book. And we, we focus about half the book on how do companies improve themselves to be able to do this better. And then the other half of the book is how do individuals improve themselves to become more 10x and also how to work with 10xers. Very cool. Well, can, you, can we start with 
maybe some of the fun stories on the entertainment side, and then we'll move to the tech side from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of my favorite stories was working with, over a very short period of time, two different artists, one of whom went on to be a, well, I'm just going to say who it is. One of whom is John Mayer, who went on to have a, a meteoric career. And the other was a really, really, really talented artist that we managed and worked with who had and still has a career, but not a meteoric career. And when you juxtapose the two and how they dealt with life and work and problem solving, it, it was really illustrative of, of, of what you need. And also what it got to very quickly is what is a manager and why is that so important in everybody's career, not just for people in entertainment or sports, but how do you find your mentor, manager, rabbi, therapist who becomes your person in your corner, who's got a little skin in your game and is always out to help you advance? And how do you take advantage of that person? And how do you open yourself to feedback and solicit feedback from that person and everybody around you? And to just go back to this example, you had John who was so clearly interested in outside feedback, was willing and interested to look at, at what everybody's role was in things, including his own. And then we had somebody else who the minute they got a little bit of success, instantly started thinking, well, I must be great. So if anything's not going right, it must be the other people who are who are working on my team. And we worked with that person for a very long time. It wasn't like an instant you know, conclusion. But ultimately what happened was they stopped listening as soon as they got successful. And because they stopped listening to all the people that knew more than, more than they did at that point in their career, their career started going the wrong direction. And they started looking at all those people and saying, well, it must be you. So, you know, the, the ability for highly productive, highly talented people to take accountability for their own role and be open and curious to feedback about themselves is one of the, the real gems of 10Xers and one of the things that separated John out from so many of his peers. Oh, what a complimentary thing to say about him. What's an example of something that he'd be willing to take feedback on? He approached almost everything with enough of an open mind that the questions would be there for those around him to give to give uh, to give that feedback. It wasn't always taken. He didn't it wasn't it wasn't taken blindly. It wasn't just because somebody said something. And there were many things that he had incredibly strong convictions about that never like he he was never willing to take to take the advice on them and then there there were there were many others that that he would and it, it's you know this is one of the things about high performers is they like choices they like the feedback but they also have vision and they know where they want to go and they know what they're willing to accept and what they're not willing to accept and that's another that's another quality of the people who are exceptional so, I mean, could it just be something about the performance? Hey, listen, I wonder if things would go better if you did this first and then that happened or like what, what could that look like? Practically? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 this is going back quite a few years, but it could be as simple as, you know, the, the pacing of the set or the presentation, how something was presented. He was always very solicitous of opinions around artwork and photos and he had strong opinions about them, but he wanted to get other other people's opinions and not just one. It wasn't like there, it was, there, there was not just one individual who he, who, you know, he was going to for as a trusted source. He was open to, to enough feedback that he could sort of filter what was valuable and what was predominant. And there were a few things where everybody was on a different page than he was. And he didn't, he didn't relent. 
<laughs> uh, and can you explain to people the difference between agents and managers and, and some of the lingo in that world? Yes, I'm happy to do that. And I'm glad you asked. So let's just use the music industry as the backdrop for the conversation because it's pretty transferable. Within the music industry, each act who's successful enough to do so has a talent agent who's responsible for booking the shows and the tours, corporate events, sponsorship around those tours, and possibly like the merch deal that goes that, that's related to that. And that's all about their live performance. The manager is more, so I almost think of, to put it in corporate terms, the the agent is sort of the person who's running, is, is in some ways, I don't want to say chief revenue officer, but chief touring officer, chief touring planning strategist. And then the manager is really the CEO and the artist is really the executive chairman. So the manager is sitting at the, in, at the spoke of the wheel, dealing with the record company, the publisher, the agent the tour personnel, the sponsorship deals, other er areas of entertainment. And they're, they're sort of doing all of this on behalf of their client. And the agent is doing their piece on behalf of the client, but often they're interfacing with the manager and not the actual act. Did that okay. clarify? And, and management is, I would say, more strategic and agenting is more tactical and more getting certain things done, which is not to say that there's not strategy involved. But it's it's a little bit more hands-on, nitty-gritty, getting in, in the weeds of how to make these things happen. Okay. Tell us another let, – let's do another entertainment story. Here's another one. Another entertainment story. Well, the first job I had out of college was going on tour with Bruce Springsteen, which was a pretty astounding way to start my career in the music industry and, and also ruin the rest of my experiences in the music industry because when you start like that, there's no place to go but down. The things that came from that were I got to see, and I didn't have this war, the, the, the term 10Xer for probably 20 years after this, but I got to see my first one up close and personal in Bruce, but then I got to see and understand that one of, what, one of the things that made him such a real 10Xer was all of the people that he had surrounded himself with. And I'm not suggesting that he picked, handpicked each one of them, but whichever ones he picked, picked the other right people to have around him. And the team was just astounding. And, you know, we interview both of his managers in, in the book to get their perspective about this and to talk about this concept. And they, they share some really important stories. But one of the things that he does as, as a human being, as a performer, as a professional, is he so inspiring at every turn that everybody who works for him wants to do their best because they don't want to let him down because he's never letting us down in in his in his performance in his work ethic he's always going to be working harder than anyone else and that makes everybody around him really want to deliver so most of us hear stories about you know the talent being prima donnas and and treating people like garbage. This is this is fun to hear about somebody on this side of things. W what's an example? What's an example of? Do you, do you remember any stories, any specifics from your time with him? Of of Bruce treating somebody badly? No, treating him treating people well. Of oh, like, him treating people uh, well. Oh, yeah. I was going to say I I don't have a single example of him treating people badly. You know the the most intimate examples of that were. In the role that I had, I, I wore a bunch of different hats on that tour over the years. But one of the, the one of the great moments I got to have was I was often on the bus with Bruce and the band right after the show and getting to see them talk to each other about that shared experience as a fly on the wall. Clearly, I was not jumping in and being like, yeah, I saw, I saw that too. I was very quiet and happy to be there observing. 
uh, I, I was all of, I think, 21 at the time. Getting to, getting to hear them unpack the experience of pl- having played to 60,000 people in Europe and share, having this shared, there was no... There was no I in in the way this was ever discussed. There was no Bruce referring to I. It was always a we, and it felt like a we. And that everybody knows everybody's role. And I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like Bruce doesn't know that he's Bruce and the E Street Band is the E Street Band. But it, it wasn't treated that way. And the second thing I would say that also related to the job I was doing was I got to be in a bunch of very intimate sort of after party dinner situations with the record label. Who, was, who would be there from each market as we would go through. This was all in Europe. And what I got to see in those moments was, you know, whatever Bruce's day was, working out and then doing a sound check for a long time and then doing a show for three and a half hours. And so we're talking about these parties started at after 1 or 2 a.m. And he would make toasts and express his gratitude to both his team that traveled with him who were in the room but also the the people from the the local label offices and the you know the publicity team locally or traveling all of the people who would be there and it was so gracious and it was such a he was so generous in his willingness to share it's not even just a willingness to share it's a recognition that this doesn't happen just from him and that there's a lot of people who are who are participating and, you know, many more than he'll never even know of or know their names. But when he was there and he was in the rooms, it was always sharing the the sunshine and the light that came along with it with the people who helped make it happen for him. And I think that as I got older, I didn't know the word gratitude in, 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 a, in a bigger context at the time. But as I've gotten older and I've come to learn how much I think happiness is directly correlated to how much gratitude you have. I'm recognizing that 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 was something that he probably knew. He's he's almost he's 20 years and 20 days older than me, something something like that. So he was a little further ahead. I think he had figured that out long before I did, understandably. Oh, what an inspiring story. What a, what a credit to him. It's interesting how that stuff is both ins- inspirational and contagious, right? Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable. And and what what comes from organizations that are like that and i i like to think that we you know we've built our company in some degree in in that image feels it feels like a very different place i don't want to say it feels like a family although i i i do think that that's not far off but i think that's not a perfect fit but when you really care about the people you work with and the people that work for you and they know you really care about them, not just because they work for you, but because they're people you have a relationship with, I think you see really different results. And we talk about this a lot in Game Changer. And it's not one of the people we interview is is Daniel Lubetsky, who founded Kind Snacks, which has recently been been sold, but he built it into a multi-billion dollar company. And he talks a lot about the difference between being nice and being kind. And it's a very important distinction. And when we are kind to our team, not nice, but kind, it, it gets repaid in droves. And you know, I can tell you, at least based on published averages in the world, our retention for our employees is probably two or three X what it should be. And it's not because we pay better than anybody else. And it's not because we have ping pong tables in the office because we don't. It's because the people who work with us know that we care about them. We care about their life. 
We have stated core values as a team that we created together that we post on the wall and try and live by. And I think that, you know, people think of, you know, I think there's old school managers who think of this sort of woo-woo, new age, fluffy stuff as being superfluous. And I think just the opposite. I think you get the best out of people when they feel connected and they understand the why and they want to do it because of the people they work with. You know, it's funny how when we sit around, like, as I listen to you say this, I'm thinking like, yeah, that's who I want to be as a boss, right? And then day to day, if we don't build habits, it doesn't happen by accident, right? It's true. I mean, you have to really, this this is about intentionality. This is not, this is not an accident. And you can be a really nice person and a really nice leader. And this doesn't, this doesn't all happen just because of that. I mean, I'll tell you, the pandemic was a great opportunity for us to make changes in the right direction on this front out of what we we believe to be necessity. And I'm really glad that we did it, but we should, there's some of those things we should have done years before, you know, we, we, as when the pandemic began and everybody was sent off to their own little private Island of, of home, we realized that people were going to be lonely and scared and isolated. And we started a, a weekly check-in call where we start our week on Mondays in, in the early afternoon, just how was your weekend? There's no agenda. It's not that work things are never mentioned on that call, but there's no, it's not a work call. And then we added meditation twice a week that we do by Zoom for anybody who wants to do that. And we added once a month one-on-ones instead of instead of semi-annual ones to just talk about people's performances or anything going on in their lives. Or sometimes those calls end after 10 minutes because there's not that much to talk about, but it's another place to check in on each other and see how we're doing. And boy, I can imagine certain leaders thinking, God, that's a lot of wasted time you're spending on on this stuff. And I'm telling you, it's not. <laughs> well, I, I just think about, you know, the people in my life who meant the most to me, who I would take a bullet for, right? And they're, they're people who didn't treat me like a tool in their tool belt. They're people who treated me like a real life human being. I, I think that's exactly right. We talk a lot about this, that the days of treating people like cogs in the machine are more or less over, not because you can't, but because if you want to work with people who are awesome, they won't be treated that way. They have very specific things that they need. And what we what we started out, our thesis was originally about 10Xers. And what we realized is the the same values that they have, the same needs they have, actually really spill down to Gen X, uh, sorry, to, to Gen Z and millennials as well. And so when you when you take when you sort of look at the map of like you've got the best performers who need certain things, and then you have these entire two younger generations who need the same things, you can either be, you know, run your company the way you've been running it forever and hope that, you know, they'll be the, the job market will be bad enough that you'll get some of these people. Or you can adapt and say, This these people who I want to have working here and I should have working here want to know how their personal mission aligns with what our company does. They want to know what their future looks like at this company. And if there's no consideration for that, then they don't see this company in their future. Then they start looking for what else is going to be in their future. And there's so many opportunities to just make small tweaks to how people are dealt with that are going to save so much money. I mean, we see this in job negotiation all the time. What do companies ask before they make a job offer? They ask, generally speaking, one question. 
What is your salary or what is your compensation requirements? We created something when we help people negotiate that's the first thing we do that has 24 different attributes that go into a job. It's called a lifestyle calculator. And they get 100 points and they have to sprinkle them, salary, equity, paid time off, like all of these different things. And so right off the bat, when we start to help them, we know what this individual cares about. If companies would do that before they made a job offer, they'd save money because they'd be able to say, oh, this person really cares about working remotely or they really care about flex time because they want to be at their kids' games in the afternoon and they'll work you know, an extra five hours at night to be able to have that flexibility. As soon as you start to understand what people want, you don't, you don't have to keep throwing money at it if it's not money. That's not the, that's not the solution for everyone. So it, it's unfortunate because I, I, I don't see companies making these changes very quickly, at least not large enterprise companies. Yeah, it's kind of like it, it's it's funny because as soon as someone else is doing it, you're like, hey, why are you, you know, if they're only trying to answer the question with compensation, right? And like what with salary, it's like, why are you painting with only one color? Right. right? And and then when it comes to our when it comes to us and being efficient, it's so easy to skip it. Like it's so easy to be objective for everyone else, I think. Right. And And, yeah. And also, why don't you want to have a three dimensional understanding of what's important to this person so you can better like you can provide better, you know, a better environment for them to succeed? The whole idea of managing people the same way is a really ridiculous idea. Do you do you know, you know, people to be really similar to each other? That we we learn in different ways than each other. We get satisfaction from different kinds of things than the person sitting next to us. And we take feedback in different ways. I like my feedback on 11. I solicit everybody in my life. I I solicit it quite a bit more often, but every year I do a survey to everybody in my life, family, friends, therapists, rabbi, board members that I sit on boards with. It's very short, but I want feedback and I don't need, I don't need it wrapped with the positive stuff. I just want to know like, what, what, what did I do that rubbed you or might have that, what could I do better is really what I want to know. And I've, you know, by being open and solicitous of that, I've learned some very important and sometimes difficult lessons that required swallowing hard and saying, do I really do that? And, and I do, or I did, (laughs) I did, and I do it less and hopefully I won't do it in the future. Wow, what a great practice. Do you know the book Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman? I have not read that book, but I I bet you'd re- I, I bet you'd really enjoy it. Okay. I'm definitely writing it down. He just he he explains his career taking over his dad's business and kind of doing it typical MBA wise and laying people off when the business had problems and you know, kind of running the business off an Excel spreadsheet a little bit, kind of more traditionally. <laughs> And then he has this like aha moment of like, he's sitting in this break room at one of the companies he owns and nobody knows who he is, but like, as they're all like laughing and joking, having a good time talking about the final four for basketball. And as the time clicks down to eight o'clock, the mood just gets worse and worse and worse until they finally like get up and dredge themselves into the factory. And he says this aha of like, why does, why does work have to suck? Like we've, we're, we're in charge of these people's like so many hours of these people's lives. Can't we like, can't we make that better? Yeah. And just through embracing continuous improvement and other things and letting people bring their brain to work instead of just, you know, just their hands has this amazing change in the way people feel around there. But also in the kind of profitability of the company, they they buy this kind of mediocre company, get everybody to start thinking this way. Everything turns around. They use the profits to go buy another one. They've bought over a hundred companies now. They have a 100% success rate 
They've grown their revenues to 2.3 billion so far. They have a compound annual growth rate of like matching Warren Buffett's like 23% compound annual growth rate for like 30 years. It's it's like this crazy success rate. And it's like, it's just so dialed into humans as humans in the way he approaches. And he's not Pollyanna, right? He, he doesn't pretend that there aren't problems, but I just, I love that it's not just a theory, like that it's... You know, it's why I love your Bruce Springsteen story. It's like, it's not a you should. It's it's somebody's example I can actually right. follow, you know? Right. Yeah, uh, abs- absolutely. So anyways, I, I bet you'd enjoy that book. Well, listen, this, tell us another this, story this, from your Does book. this book cover a story about, is this philosophy the the one, is there a Latin American connection to this or no? Not that I know of. It, it's okay. Barry Waymiller Companies. Okay. Is the is the business. I will. I will definitely read it. I. I, I will confess, and I, I'll. I'll share this because it might be useful for um, some people. And I have nothing to do with the company. I. I don't have as much time to read as I would like to, but I really care about reading things that get recommended to me in in this space. So I subscribe to an app called Blinkist, which is. Are you familiar with it? It's, yep. it's summaries of business books. So I, I, while I tell you I will read this book, I will actually read a summary that'll take probably a half an hour to get through rather than several hours. But because I'm I'm not so good at nuance and details anyway, I'll get the big I'll get the the main themes out of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I should own up this. I read like zero to one books a year. I listen to like three to four books a week, right. <laughs> like a right. three and a half speed on Audible. Okay. I was about to and say, don't, don't you love that you I can read? Up? Yeah. I do not read anything, right? Yep. Even my computer, I've got my laptop set where I've got the hotkey for like, I make the computer read me my emails and like text to speech, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, this is another example of the, of each of us has to has to learn things in different ways. And why would we create environments, work environments where everybody's supposed to do everything the same way. Yeah. Well, t- tell us another fun story from the book. So there is our, our our third and newest business, which is called 10XSN. We help people negotiate full-time job offers. These are high-level tech professionals. And this is where we run into how many HR departments are sort of years years back on so many levels. And I don't fault them. These are large institutions that just change is not easy. We were we were brought in to negotiate a, I'm just figuring out how to anonymize everything, a, a deal for a, a very high level senior tech professional with a, a large financial services institution. This is good. This is nice and broad. I'm not going to give anything away. And they had been having these conversations for some extended period of time and were not getting to a deal. It was moving really slowly. And we were brought in to sort of help the the process along. And the problem with the financial institution was that their the offer that they were presenting was just not adequate for the market for the for these people in the market. It was it was never going to work. And one of the things they wanted out of the person they were trying to hire was that he or she would bring in an additional people that that they knew. And we had to explain to the HR team that you know there's two problems here. One is you're never going to close the, the this person because you're just not offering you're not even offering enough to make it make sense let alone make it enticing and more importantly even if they accepted they can't do what you want because on on the pay scale you're working on they're not going to be able to hire the people you want their 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 colleagues won't come so long story short the HR team took that note and ran it up the flagpole. And much to my joy and surprise, they did a little bit of work and concluded that I was not, it wasn't just 
self-beneficial that I was saying this. It was actually true. And they changed the pay scale for the bank. And ultimately, what happened with that deal was we got the deal done for the person I was working with, which was very exciting. But the bank actually gave that person's boss a six-figure raise because otherwise it would have been like the person that, that I was helping would have come in above their boss. And that was <laughs> that was a moment, that was a rare moment in my experience of seeing a very big, staunchy financial services institution allowing outside information in and making a fast and meaningful change. And that really impressed me and surprised me. And, and you know, I, I, I'm going to say this because I haven't named the institution. I've gone on to do some other stuff with this institution at the request of the person who came in, in some instances. And the rest of their procurement process was god awful. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was untenable. And if you want to be successful in the moment that we're living in, being agile or nimble or uh, ability, your ability to pivot and iterate and make change and accommodate your needs is paramount. And when you want to bring on somebody for a three-month project and you need a hundred and uh, sorry, a 400-page MSA signed that has crazy insurance requirements, you're, and you're, we're not, not talking about hiring McKinsey. We were hiring... They wanted to hire one individual person to work on one individual project, but didn't seem to have, in spite of the fact that this is a probably a Fortune 20 company, didn't have any mechanism to allow that to happen. And I understand that what they were after was protecting themselves from legal issues because that document that I was referring to that was 400 or 500 pages didn't start out that way. It got added. Every time there was a legal problem, they added stuff into the agreement. We've done the same. Don't get me wrong. That's how business gets done. But at a certain point, you have to wake up and say, oh, this got really bloated. This doesn't really work because while we may be protecting ourselves from some from very obscure law suit that may happen at some point in the future, the, all the business that we're not able to do between now and then, it, it, it's the, the, better, the better move is to take the small risk of that legal problem and be able to conduct business. And, I, and I, this is what we see all over the place. This was a big part of what, why we wrote this book is we see companies who are, you know, their biggest obstacle is themselves. They're just can't get out of their own way. And I will I will share another funny story, which is I have a friend who's the CEO of a company in the tech space, and they do consulting. And he was being hired to teach a company, a large Fortune 500 company, how to be agile. That was what they were bringing him in was to be flexible. And they presented him with a 150-page consulting agreement that had something like 120-day payment terms. And he more or less said, like, if this is where you're starting, I'm not sure we can work together. And I, I don't know if if they actually were able to get the deal done and who was able to help them, but it, it's just so illustrative of what the problem is. Yeah. We had this great author on the show recently who's got a book you probably enjoy called The Ministry of Common Sense. <laughs> It's good. I'm writing that one down again because I definitely will appreciate that. So, you know, my my last guest on the show is an AI expert. And we are talking about, you know, some like for us, for our investment fund, right? So I've got this unique ability that, you know, used to be illegal for 80 years called advertising a private investment, okay? Until the Jobs Act, that, right. that was a no-no, right? And now... I can do something called a 506C, Regulation D 506C raise. So I can advertise it to anybody, but I can at this point, I can only accept accredited investors, right? 
And we're going through some of the advances in AI and how like how new chatbots are mimicking natural language to the point where they're not these annoying things. They're actually like very helpful. And he talked about being called by the the Google automated system that was checking up on his business and business listing. And like the first time he didn't realize it was a computer talking to him. It was only in the second call that he realized it was a computer, right? So huge, huge opportunity for us. If we could stop paying commissions to licensed broker dealers for success fees and have a chatbot that we program once and it answers questions for, for prospective investors ongoingly, at, including at three in the morning, like this is a great thing for us, right? So if you'd like help building it, we can do that. Well, here's my thought is, at least I would probably like modifying one, right? Even if we take something off the shelf, mm-hmm. we're working with somebody and, or, or at least some talent to come in and, and know what we should be modifying, right? So, you know, I'm a snowboarder. I'm a, I'm an investment banker. I'm a art school dropout. None of those, none of those included any computer science, right? So somebody like me who wants to go find somebody who is exceptional at, at AI and this kind of stuff versus somebody who just interviews well, or somebody who has a resume that looks good. What kind of tips do you have for people like me who are going like, okay, I want to embrace the future, but I don't want to overpay for somebody that just sounds good. Where do, what kind of advice do you have in finding 10 Xers? So obviously, you know, not to make the obvious plug, but that's what we do. We have a huge pool of talent that we've pre-vetted and you you can vet them as as well. It's not that that's that's excluded. But I think most importantly, what you want to find in a 10Xer or in a developer or technologist is somebody who clearly is interested in your problem. They're inspired. Like I, I have seen our people who have, when I said, how much do you need for this boring project? The answer is a lot of money. How much do you need for this really challenging, hard, hairy, gnarly problem that may not even be solvable? I, I don't care. Just, you know, if I have to pay to do it, I'll do it. But they're, they're so they're so interested in the hard problem solving and the excitement of new, of new stuff. They're interested in feedback, and they're going to be fairly clear up front with you that you you they want to know that you're happy, and they want to check in with you and make sure that things are going smoothly. And the other part that I think is very important with this is, and this is not rocket science, I don't want to make it sound like I'm telling everybody everything they don't know, is doing some reference checking. And obviously, you can. it's easy enough to get the reference from the person. But if you have any ability to back channel and via LinkedIn or any other way, find somebody that you know that knows them and find out how they did, I think those are, those are very useful. We do a fair amount of totally legal and not creepy cyber stalking before we bring on a client. We check a lot of references. And the other thing that you can do also is if you look at where somebody worked and how long they stayed places... It doesn't tell you if somebody just gets wanderlust, wanderlust and, and leaves fairly regularly because they get bored. But, if, but it certainly poses a question if you see somebody not staying places for a very long time consistently. Because over the course of a career, sure, there's places you go for a year and you took a step up on your career and you're going to go to the next place. But it can't all be that. There's got to be something that was inspiring that wanted to keep you there. And again, it doesn't prove... It doesn't prove that the person is is good. It might prove that they're there. It might pose pose a sign that there's a problem. And I think the other thing that I look for when we interview these people that is the most telling is two questions that I ask. Tell me about a time you made a mistake. 
All I care about in that is that they're going to actually tell me that they made a mistake and not tell me about a mistake that was made and then tell me why it was everybody else's fault. Like if they can really own their mistake and then how they how they owned it, how they fixed it, how they addressed it, how they reported on it. We all make mistakes. That That's the easy part. But this is the easiest, fastest way to, you know, checking out somebody's EQ from my perspective. The second question is asking them, tell me about a time you were working for somebody and you thought they were making a mistake and how did you address it? Because especially with building technology, the thing we hear most of all about people who had bad experiences before they get to us is that is that they say something to the to the effect of person was really nice. They did everything I asked them to do, but they didn't really understand the big picture. And when I asked at the end why it did or didn't do something, they said, because we didn't you didn't tell us to do that. And those are people who are just executing on something rather than thinking about what's the best way to do this. And though, you know, if you can get all of those things done, you're probably in pretty good shape. Yes, if you do a thousand projects that way, you will have some some margin of error. We do this all day, every day. I'm not going to say we've never had a problem with anyone we've brought in, but our 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 rate is pretty pretty great. I love that. Uh, I especially like that second question. I haven't heard that one before, but but very telling, right? Because there there will be conflict there, especially if you're making new stuff. Right? Yeah, There'll absolutely. be difference of opinions. There'll be all those things. And and um, the, the the answers I'm looking for there are not necessarily just that you argue, but the first thing is, huh, that's interesting. Why do you want to do it that way? Be curious. Often it's, well, my advisor told me we should build it in Ruby. Well, can I talk to your advisor then? But again, why? And sometimes a founder might say, or or the the customer might say, oh, I know this is a terrible technical decision, but I'm doing it for b- good business reasons. Okay, that's fine. So start out by with the curiosity of why does somebody want to do something that you think is a bad idea? And then if they if they actually don't understand, you got to explain it to them, explain it to them, explain it to them till the, till they understand. It's still their choice. Ultimately, your your you know if if you're one of our ten Xers, you serve at their pleasure. You're going to do it the way they want it done at the end of the day. You just have to make sure they know what they're doing and the trade-offs they're making. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. I'm interested, obviously I have a lot of authors on this show. I'm interested in why you decided to go through the pain of writing a book. It's a great question. And I, I can't say it was something that we had been planning strategically over a long period of time. I will tell you at some point, Three or four years ago, I actually sat down and, and made a bucket list for myself, and writing a book was on it. So I, I didn't I didn't think it was going to be this book. I thought it was going to be a different book, but it was on there. I mean, so were things like winning an Oscar, which I have virtually no chance of of doing. I mean, I went pretty crazy with my bucket list, not as a performer, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. And and then there was a moment where we were having a strategic conversation internally, and we were talking about marketing, and we were talking about would it make sense to have a book? And it was almost in that exact moment, the flash of what the book that was all, I mean, the book that, that was here, it went through a lot of, a lot of iteration, but the concept of it, this, this distillation of what there is across all these fields of talent management and what, what is the through line almost sprang out as, as a flash of inspiration, the way that most of the other things that, that I've, you know, I have any pride about have, have come to life. And, and I, I, you know, if you, if you work in, in the music world, you, you will hear a, a lot about the hit songs of, I don't even know where that came from. It just came out of me. I, you know, songwriters who write, who sit down and struggle and toil every day and write song after song after song. 
all of a sudden they wake up one morning and this thing falls out of them, you know, sort of barf it out. And that's their big hit. And the, the concept of this book was fairly the initial concept of the book came out that way. And then there was a lot of once we once we got an agent, we really got put through our paces about restructuring and rethinking. And it was great. And it was a pleasure to work with somebody. And it was a great opportunity for us having been agents and managers to be to finally be the client and have the agent representing us <laughs> and being on the other side of it. And you guys went with Harper Collins, is that right? Yes. What was that experience like? It was kind of it was an interesting experience. I've heard and about the about the publishing industry for a very long time. I've had a, a, a lot of friends who who had published books. From from the standpoint of writing, the actually the hardest part, the the only part that we struggled with was was as our agent was helping us get the proposal into shape, which was more than half the book. But she really challenged us on some of the some of the ideas we had and some of the structure. And that was the moment that was really a lot of a lot of back and forth and a lot of going around. And that process only lasted probably two or three months. Once we finished that, she had a publishing offer for us within two weeks time, maybe a week's time. We had a deal done almost instantly. And even from there, it's not that there were zero suggestions from the publisher, but they were fair. You know, there was a little bit of restructuring of, of a sequence in some regard. But it was very, it was nothing compared to what we had gone through with the agent. And from there, it was really easy. And it was, it was fun. And it was great. And promoting it is the, you know, is also fun and great when we get to meet and talk to people like you. But it's also, it's a little bit weird having spent my entire career pushing people out in front of us who are the talent and being, and you go do the interview. We're in the background to actually be here and do this now. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm enjoying it. Well, it's obvious to me that you like people. What are what are some of your lessons for making friends, for building trust with clients, things like that? What are the principles you live by? One of the things that I love most about the businesses that we've been in and structured, and I don't think we set out by design to do this, the, the, the artist management model predated us. But I love being partners with people and earning a commission from their winnings, if you will, from when they succeed. And getting to, you know, the fact that we have three companies and they all are commission-based, you know, we, we earn our, our money from commission is is definitely a plus. When people have skin in the game, you you definitely have a different relationship with them. It's this, it's this idea of, of partnership. So I think that that sort of brings me back to the question in terms of, the, peop the people aspect of it, what I what I love about that. There was a second half of your question that I feel like I've ignored. Oh, no, I was just saying, what are some of the things that you live by and the way that you work with people and how you build trust with clients? The, the, other, the other place that I find it easiest to build trust, and by the way, I hate building trust. I hate it. I hate that you start out with none. And, and I want to walk in almost like you're, you're, you're Uber rating as a driver. Like I want to walk in and have people know this is a solid person who's, you know, doesn't believe in lying and, you know, is, is, is a pretty reliable, but that's not how the world works. So you, you start out with nothing. And I think if, if I'm honest, the best things we've done that, that build trust are when we give advice that is very clearly counter to our own best interest. It is good for them and it is not necessarily good for us. And, those opportunities are not abundant, but they exist. And I, and I think they're really important. And then the other one is 
being honest and direct enough that people know that they're going to you're going to tell them when when you don't agree with them and that you know it's you're not just a, a yes person who's there to make them feel good and along for the ride and sometimes that works really well where people are very happy for the direct feedback and there are other people who don't want it i mean we we have walked away from many a musical act who just wanted the yes they wanted the pat on the back and to be told they were great. And that's not really what what we perceive our job to be. <laughs> Debate can't hire professional cheerleaders. I just need a personal professional cheerleader, right? Yeah. Well, and and by the way, there are many, many, many successful artist managers who kind of go go with the flow. And and that that is often very wise. You have to know who your client is. You have to know whether they really want to know what's in front of them and whether they really want to improve or whether they uh, want to just have the status quo and not have any anything that's abrasive. <laughs> Interesting. So one of my favorite questions this year has been asking people what's one of the best pieces of advice they ever received. So that's what mm. I want to hear from you. This is not advice, but I love when my father has many times said, it's hard to soar with eagles when you work with turkeys, but that is not the best advice I've gotten. Actually, I'm going to, one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten is from my father, which is when you want something done, go to the busiest person in the room. It's so counterintuitive and it's totally true. There are people who, you know, who just get things done because they're busy and they know how to, they know how to get things done. And there's other people who have nothing on their plate and they can't get anything done. And I've seen this in my for-profit life. And I've also seen this a ton in my not-for-profit life where, you know, volunteers with, you know, seemingly good intentions just gum up the works by taking things on and not delivering. And it's really hard, especially with a volunteer. With an employee, if that happens, you let them go. But with a volunteer, it's a little trickier and you should let them go, but you you, you have to do that a little more delicately. Yeah. That's a good one. Well, listen, any, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just thinking of other, other words of wisdom that I, that I really take to heart. I think the other one is, is really just that the more you can invest in yourself, the better. I, I, I don't have any regrets for money or time I've spent in optimizing myself. They've all paid off because even the, the tiniest things, I mean, you talked about listening to books on, you know, at high speed. I, I do that. I do that. I, I have all my videos set so that I can watch them on high speed. I dictate almost everything because it's so much more efficient. I speak much faster than I can type. And I just I just find ways to just cut little little parts of my day down. And when it's an everyday thing, it really adds up. Yeah, makes sense. Well, listen, where are the best places for people to connect with you on the interwebs? 10X Management is an easy way to connect with us. We are on LinkedIn as well. And there's also a website called GameChangerTheBook.com. And that's a great place to connect with us because not only can you learn about the book and reach out to us from there, but there's also two quizzes, one to tell you how 10X your company is and the other to tell you how 10X you are. And people have been enjoying playing with those. That's fun. Well, thanks for doing this. Jess, it was a pleasure. I'm really glad we got to do this. Thanks so much for all of the engaging questions. Bye, everyone.